0: Dive straight into stuff because we start a new series today and uh, frankly it is a difficult series and uh, when i talk to other pastors about talking about suffering and pain and the midst of and god in the midst of pain a lot of pastors go "Ooh, i don't know if i want to go there because it's hard but one of the things that drives me to want to talk about this is the fact that the bible doesn't shy away from suffering and pain the book of psalms a third of them are classified as lament psalms. They're about this, these um, poets writing songs about God, where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? A third of them. And then we've got a whole book named Job or Job, if you don't know. <laughs> I, think, I don't even know, actually know if it's supposed to be Job or Job. Um, really? That's the Hebrew? Job. It's Job. So... Um, the Ethiopian in our says Yob. <laughs> um. And uh, we have a whole book on suffering. And then you could say that the book of Ecclesiastes, which follows that soon after, has a lot of suffering in there as well. And then we obviously have a Savior who suffered mightily. And then the apostles, as they write all these letters to the church, a big part of it is like there is going to be suffering. And so the fact that the church can sometimes gloss over this topic of suffering, I think, doesn't do the Bible any justice. It doesn't do our Christian walk any justice because the Bible talks a lot about it however talking about pain and suffering is a very difficult thing Um, and there is one main issue with it and this is an age-old problem that i don't think i think that's part of the problem we don't have any neat answers um, for the pain for the problem of pain there there isn't a neat answer that's why we've done this over three weeks and i don't even think we're going to be scratching the full uh, topic and um i'm hoping that, that there's so many ways to be talking about this and i hope that i've chosen a route um, that will be helpful and practical and lead us to actually consider um, how we are living, how we are behaving, how we are thinking, how we are feeling. Um, but at the same time, I also wanted to say that I understand that some of these things that we talk about is going to be triggering, perhaps is going to elicit emotions, is going to have, you're going to have to think about suffering and pain for this to be useful. Um, but this is an age-old problem. Uh, we have records of a debate between um, uh, uh, a person named Lactantius and a guy named Epicurus, and this was 300 BC, 300 BC, 300 years before Christ. And they were having a chat, and Epicurus, uh, debate, not a chat, they didn't have chats back then, they had debates, (laughs) philosophical uh, debates, and Epicurus uh, uh, was a pagan philosopher who advocated that gods aren't really interested in us, And so we are just left to find pleasure as an antidote to pain as we struggle along in this world. And so we get the word Epicurean from this guy. So when you next time go for a buffet at the Epicurean, what you are saying is that you believe that you should be indulgent in life. That's, (laughs) That's really what it's all about. That's what this guy said. There is no God who can save us from pain um so what's the point let's just indulge and be hedonistic and just live out our pleasures and live out our desires because let's just numb the pain and that's the best thing that we can do for ourselves and in this debate that he had with lactantius he says if god is able to end suffering but is unwilling he must be unkind or disinterested if god is willing but unable he is feeble Either way, he isn't really worthy of the name God in a providential sense. And so Epicurus Epicurus, um, puts together the key issue with pain. If we have a God, can we put that quote and just leave it up, please? If we have a God who is able to, has the power to end suffering, but he doesn't, what does this mean about him? He's unkind or disinterested. But if he can't do anything about my pain, can't do anything about the suffering of his will, he is therefore feeble. He's either unkind or feeble. And do you want to worship that God? That's what Epicurus puts forward. And that is the problem of pain. See, what pain does, it makes us consider how God is at work in our lives whether He actually is at work in our lives or not. Epicurus doesn't believe so. But it causes us, whether you have had a strong uh, encounter with God before, or whether you've had uh, uh, amazing teaching given to you, or whether you've been following Christ all your life, when the problem and the pain hits, when you are suffering in that moment, we as human beings cannot help but ask this question, God, why? Why? Are you still here or are you not who you said you are and are you not able to do what you said that you can do? And so we end up in this limbo space where we don't know how to relate to God because we are in this space where we're wondering who is God? And C.S. Lewis captures uh, this in a quote in his book, Grief Observe, where he walked through uh, and wrote down and journaled about his personal grief as he watched his wife slowly pass away. And, and, and he talked about this grief and he says, The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him being God. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. See, Lewis wasn't worried that he would become an atheist. For him, it's like there is God, there is, there is, there's definitely God, and there's no way around this. This is clear for me. This is something that I know. But my worry is that in the middle of this grief, I end up with this thought. So this is what God is really like. I don't know whether you have faced situations where that's a thought that you had. So this is what God is really like. You say he's love, but in the midst of my pain, he's absent. You say he is powerful, but in the midst of this war that I'm in the middle of, there is no end. You say he is gracious and merciful, but I am oppressed, broken, beaten down. You say he's a comforter, but I have no comfort so this is what God is really like that's what pain does and we're going to need to walk through this because all of us will face painful traumatic situations in our life in a study that I did last year especially through COVID all of us will have faced traumatic like situations how we go through them is subjective, which means that each of us have to wrestle with things ourselves, but at the very least, it would have caused us to kind of go, so what is my life like? And how do I relate to God in the middle of all that I'm facing? And so what I'm hoping to do over this week uh, is to give a foundation uh, as we talk about suffering. And then over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna go into some uh, practical uh, ways of wrestling with suffering and pain uh, but today, we're, g- we're going to have an introduction to God and pain, and I'm going to look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 and 22, and let's read this together. This is a story of Noah and the flood. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Can you imagine a son named Ham? You go well with pizza. For behold I will bring a flood sorry, I just skipped a few verses. For I will bring a flood of water, uh, waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of the um, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep alive with you. Also take with you every sort of fruit that is eaten, store it up etc. Noah did this and God, he did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we dive into this topic, as we dive into what you say in your Word, I pray that if there's any pain that is revisited in our lives, that God, that you'll be able to speak into it. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you are here and you're guiding us, you're bringing conviction, you're bringing ultimately life and hope to us as well, God. And so we allow you to speak, we ask you to speak this morning, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So super famous story, Noah and the Ark. And as I was thinking about how to approach this topic of suffering, I felt really drawn to this story because I feel that there's some key elements in here that will help us to understand and to frame this discussion on pain and suffering. And I'm going to make about five points today. I never do points, but there are five points today, and the first point that I want to make is this, God is sovereign over all. See, the problem that Epicurus felt when he saw the pain and suffering of the world, he said, God is either feeble, unkind, or unreal. That's what he was saying. He said, there's no God. If there's, even there's a God, this God is powerless, and he doesn't really care. But this story shows us that God is intimately aware of what is taking place in His creation. He is aware of what is taking place and He is intimately uh, involved. In what is taking place. Our Christian perspective needs to come back to this place of God is sovereign. In the midst of pain and suffering, one of the things that the Bible is extremely clear about is that God is sovereign. If we move this central piece and we say that God is not sovereign, we end up ending, we end up with Epicurus thinking that God is feeble or God is unkind. But if we remember that God is sovereign and we try to understand the story through God's sovereignty, things begin to open up. Yeah, and so we need to come to this place of firstly acknowledging, understanding, and perceiving what is happening through the sovereignty of God. However, that then leaves us with an issue. If God is sovereign, if God is powerful, does it mean that He is unkind? And that is the next question that we're going to have to face. And this is where the story shows us that God is sovereign, and God sovereignly, point two, gives us the ability to choose our actions. See, when God saw the corruption and the violence on the earth, he did something about that. But God saw, God didn't make, God saw. What does that tell us about the corruption and the violence that is on the face of the planet? That God has allowed His creation a freedom to choose their actions. If God did not give humanity the choice of actions, then that takes away our ability to be human. And one of the things that the Bible is extremely clear about is that we are responsible for our actions. If God is sovereign in a way that takes away our ability to choose, then then there's no responsibility. I cannot be responsible. Like, let me put it this way. If I tell Sam, my son, to run across a busy road and I force him to do so, I do it against his will, take away his will, I then can't tell him off. I'll be disappointed in him for running across the road. If I somehow just dangle him across the road and he's faced with this injury or death, I can't be like, "Why are you so stupid, Sam?" No, 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 no. I, I'm responsible if I made you do that. And so what we see here is that God saw the violence because He didn't create the violence. He didn't make the violence. In some way, shape, or form, we can say that God allowed the violence. But at the same time, what we need to understand when it comes to the problem of pain and suffering is that if God circumvents our will every time we are about to do something wrong, do we actually choose what is right? We don't. A lot of the pain and the suffering we face in this world is because of this corruption and violence that takes place. And at the end of the story of Noah and the Flood, which goes from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9, we find that God makes a covenant that He's not going to press the reset button like He did in that story. So, a lot of the corruption and the violence has been building. Now, we've also experienced some goodness as the kingdom of God has manifested, and there are great things like Uh, an understanding of peace and an understanding of the value of life and all that kind of stuff, but that corruption and violence continues to this day. What is happening in the Ukraine, what is happening uh, uh, all across our world with all the violence that is taking place is not because God is forcing people to be evil, and neither is it because God is not available, but it's because God has given us the ability to choose. And that is a very key part in understanding pain and suffering. But point three is that God then justly gives us the consequences for our actions. God saw the corruption and violence that is on the face of the planet, and He justly, as God, as sovereign God, then chooses to allow the consequence to take place. What is the consequence? For them in this story was the flood. Now, we need to think about this and we need to look into this because I think when I used to read this story, one of the questions is like, that's a pretty cruel way to deal with stuff, right? Why did you send a flood? Couldn't you just have gone and do the Thanos snap? God doesn't need infinity stones. He is the everlasting rock he is able to just wipe the slate clean, why did he drown people? Pretty cruel. Now what we need to understand when we read this is that we are actually not catching the literary genius of Genesis. See Genesis wasn't written as a historical account necessarily, that wasn't the point of Genesis. It wasn't whoever was writing Genesis when, you know what, we need to keep a historical account of how creation took place and all the events that took place. I recently heard one of the leading scholars of the Old Testament say that Genesis 1 to 11 is more about setting a theological foundation of how God operates with the world. From Genesis 12 onwards, it's more historical, but Genesis 1 to 11, not saying that it's not true, that's something that I wrestle with in some ways, but it's the whole point is that God wrote those scriptures, inspired those scriptures for us to understand how He's operating in this world. And when we hit Genesis 6 to 9 with the story of the flood, what we need to understand is that it is a mirror of Genesis chapter 1. I forgot to put this in my notes. So when we read Genesis 1 verse 1 and 2, this is what it says. Give me a second, I did not put this in. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep is actually waters. In the Hebrew it's a word for waters, but it's a specific word for waters is a word for chaotic waters, is a word for waters that are not given boundary, not given order. And then it goes on to say, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, once the Spirit of God is introducing the picture, the chaotic waters, the deep, is now characterized as waters, waters with boundary. See, the thing about waters is that it is such a vivid picture of chaos and order. We cannot live without ordered waters. We need water, but we also die if waters loses its boundaries. And we have seen across this nation and across the world floods, tsunamis, not fun, destructive, because the boundaries for how those waters are supposed to act have been corrupted. And so, when God in Genesis chapter 6 to 9 allows this flood to happen, what is he doing? He is decreating what he had already created. God brought order out of that chaos, and therefore life could be. Life, human beings, then are corrupted by sin and want to destroy the order of how life should be by going against God's order and so in Genesis 6 to 9 with the flood God is simply accelerating if you will or giving people the consequences of that action you don't want my order I'll take my order away, and so what does it say in Genesis six to nine? It says that God allowed the waters from the sky and the waters from the earth to come up. There was waters from the top, waters from the bottom. Why is that happening? Is because that is a picture of what's taking place—the reverse of what took place in Genesis chapter one. Does that make sense? So when God allows these, these this consequence to happen, what is He doing? He is removing His sovereignty from the world and he's saying, you don't want my order, this is what life is going to be like. We need to understand that when God allows the consequences of our actions to be played out, that is supposed to be a consequence for us to take note. He has promised us in the Word in Genesis chapter 9 that he will not allow that mass scale consequence on the face of the whole planet But what we also need to realize is that when the new testament references the story of noah is in reference to the end times to the judgment day to Jesus' second coming let me show you one of these references luke 17 26 to 27 this is jesus saying just as it was in the day of noah so it will be in the days of the son of man which is the judgment day they will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. He was talking about judgment day, the day of the flood, the day of judgment, the day where humanity is given the fullness of its own consequences, the consequences of its own choices, choices, uh, his own actions. God justly, justly, justly allows that consequence and the fullness of his consequence to be laid out when we keep slapping the hand of god away in our lives and then we find ourselves falling it's not god's fault when god has provided the means of salvation and we go no i want it on my terms we don't get a choice beggars can't be choosers If you're dangling over the side of a cliff and you see your most hated enemy on the face of the planet putting his hand down to save you and you say, not you. Who's at fault? That guy didn't save me. Well, you were the idiot that slapped his hand away. So when we understand that the flood is actually a picture of decreation, a picture of God removing his order from the world, a picture of God simply allowing the chaotic people that have rebelled against his order to receive the consequences of their actions we understand that god justly gives us consequences for our actions isn't it interesting that sometimes when we see some of the things that are taking place we blame god we blame god for some of the things that are taking place it's it's kind of crazy but i need to jump on onto point four That as much as God justly gives us consequences for our actions, God sovereignly chooses to save and to protect His people. God found Noah to be a person who was upright, to be a person that walked with Him. In this account, He is the only person and the only family to be following Him. In fact, it doesn't even say any of his family followed God. It only said Noah followed God. This is an interesting thing for us who have family members who are not believing in Christ, who are not walking with God. Perhaps there is a sense that our fellowship with God will be enough to bring salvation to them all. Different topic for a different day. But God sovereignly chooses to save and to protect His people. Romans 8.28 is one of the clearest ways that we can see this, and this is what it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, this is a very interestingly constructed um, verse. If you can go to the next slide, it actually works in an ABA format. A, we know that for those who love God, B, all things work together for good, and we're back to A, for those who are called according to His purpose. In fact, some of our translations actually say, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Yes, I think that's the NIV, because that's a more proper construction of the phrase. But the original Greek does have this ABA format. Paul chooses to break this up into an ABA format and he does so specifically to help us to understand who is God working for good. The emphasis is on those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You see, a sovereign, loving God is not simply going to distribute good indiscriminately. I heard this um podcast yesterday that say that I was talking about fatherhood and this researcher who is considered one of the top 100 thinkers on the face of the planet this guy said dads need to show unconditional love but not unconditional acceptance dads need to show unconditional love but conditional acceptance because if your child is gone around killing people Showing them acceptance is not helpful for them. You're showing them love by withdrawing the acceptance and saying, "No, no, 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 You stop killing people before you can come back to be my child." And we see this in the story of the prodigal son. The father does not chase the son to the faraway land. He waits till the son repents and comes back before there is once again acceptance. But was there unconditional love the whole way through? Absolutely. But there was only acceptance for the person that came back for the son that turned back and came back into the father's domain and so god works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose god sovereignly chooses to save and protect his people The fact that you are in this room means that at the very least you are trying to pursue god and show that you want to love god and i think that there are two parts to this it says those who love god and those who are called according to his purpose i believe that they're both talking about the same group of people but there is this wonderful thing that yes we are the ones that are trying to love god well but we also understand that he's called us according to his purpose You know, some of us don't like the idea of predestination and election in the Bible, even though it's a word that is there many times, because we think, oh, God's taking away our will. But isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that God is working to help you love Him? Isn't it wonderful that even in the hardness of my heart and the corruption of my ways, God is breaking through the noise to allow me to see that He is a good God we're following? The fact that you are in this room and gone maybe i should follow this god is a sign that the holy spirit is at work in you now the point is that we need to follow that voice that is saying come close come close but when we think about suffering what we need to realize is that god has put a promise in there that he is working all things for our good For those who love Him are called according to the purpose. God is providing a way of salvation. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, we as God's people, we are able to say confidently, He is working all things for my good. But this brings me to the final point that I want to make today that God's protection can seem like suffering too. We think that God's protection feels a lot like a pillow. It feels like a pillow of rocks sometimes. When we look at the story of Noah, God was giving Noah the way for him to find salvation in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of what was taking place, right? But did God give him the ark? Did God sovereignly make everything happen? I wonder whether the idea of Noah's uprightness with God was necessarily before the creation of the ark or if it was through the creation of the ark. Maybe the fact that Noah walked together with God was because he was one that was willing to go through the plans and the purposes and the will of God. It wasn't so much that God necessarily called someone who was going to follow Him and then gave Him the plan. I don't know. My imagination goes like this. God might have given a hundred different people the blueprints for the ark, but only one followed Him. So who was the upright one? Well, clearly, Noah. But in following the blueprints, right, it was a crap job. The ark was 137 metres long, 22.8 metres wide, and 13.7 metres high. This thing held multiple football fields in it. And this wonderfully chosen family of the Lord in the middle of the freaking desert needed to chop down enough trees specifically gopher wood what the heck is gopher wood not that tree no no not 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 the spiral wood the gopher wood specifically according to god's plans the gopher wood in the middle of the desert chop those trees down without modern machinery or tools, and to build a frickin' boat in the middle of the frickin' desert. This boat, according to historians, would have been the largest wooden floating structure in the whole of history, made by one family who were probably shepherds. And we don't get any insight into how the community would have reacted to Noah and his family, but we all have seen the movie Noah, or, or the movie, which was terrible. What were they thinking? And also we've seen Evan Almighty. That one was really fun. But we have this picture of like, why are you building a boat in the middle of the desert? Storm's coming. What storm? You're in the middle of the desert and you're saying that you want to save your family and a bunch of animals and you're building the largest boat known to humanity with no tools. Well, different tools, I guess. But isn't it such a parallel to our lives that sometimes when God is trying to save us, his method is insane until it stops being insane his method is ridiculous and impossible and frankly irresponsible until it stops being irresponsible until it stops being ridiculous until it actually goes oh you knew what you were doing See, I think that God often speaks to us about how He's wanting us to walk through certain storms, walk through certain sufferings and situations in our lives. But I think we've learned responses as to how we are meant to act. What is smart, what is wise, what is good, and when we look at what God is saying and It doesn't make sense it doesn't fit into our life plans it looks kind of (laughs) dumb when you start building the boat (laughs) and there is no cloud in the sky it can't we can't help but question God are you really doing this is this really your plans and your purposes is this how it's meant to be you've asked me to do something that i'm not qualified for you've asked me to live in a way that i didn't set up and plan none of my fathers ever learned how to build the boat and now you're asking me to change occupations in order to save my family god's path of salvation often seems like suffering now, I'm not saying that God is making us work for salvation. I want to be really careful about that. But I wonder if some of us, we need to understand that faith is not just like, I believe in you. Was like, I believe in you and therefore I follow. Faith without works is dead. And so God gives us the ability to trust Him and then He gives us the opportunity to trust Him saying that I trust God but not being willing to do what He's saying, that's the ridiculous thing. You see, the whole idea of the storm, or not a storm, the flood, is because humanity is living out of God's order. And so, God is bringing a level of order into our lives. There is a little, this is what some theologians said. Noah and his ark was the new Eden, was a reset they had all these animals, and when they fin- when the storm was over and, and Noah's ark settled on the mountain, what did he do? He made a garden. This was re edening again. He was being given the keys to live in the garden of God's blessing. But we also know what happened to Noah after this. Or if you don't know, let me tell you. He got drunk and he did some stupid things. And it kind of reset the whole thing once again. Noah was no better than Adam and Eve. He was no worse than the rest of humanity, but that cycle kept on going. And what we need to realize is that God knows that no matter how many arcs he asks of us to build, None of them really deals with the root of the issue. And so what did God do? He built a better ark. And that ark is Jesus Christ. God will save His people. God will save His people. And He sent Jesus to suffer on our behalf that there would be a new ark of salvation. A new ark that we can enter into. And that's why I believe that in Hebrews, when we read about the story of Noah once again in there, it says, strive to enter into God's rest. The word Noah actually means rest. This guy was meant to be resting in God's power, his love, his abilities, his his sovereignty, but Noah didn't. His name tells us what we were meant to be doing, but he didn't do it. But now we have the opportunity to enter into what Christ has done for us. But then Christ tells us, this is what we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks, that if you identify with me, you will suffer with me. But then on the day that I come again, I will know that you are mine. See, Lactantius, in replying to Epicurus about his question on the problem of pain, he says this, How on earth do we know that God's unwillingness to end all suffering isn't due to some wise and good reason? We can think that God's inaction or the suffering that continues in our life is a sign that God is unkind, Or feeble but there's a third option that God is working something else that is good but we might not see it or understand it right now can we get the band up this morning we are going to have communion together if you can get the host team ready See, I did a little quick study on a communion over the last week. And one of the things that I realised is that sometimes we take the communion quite lightly. We take a little cracker and we take a little cup and we do this in remembrance of God, which is what Jesus said. But in the midst of all of this, do we recognize that doing this in remembrance of God is also an invitation to come close to God? You know, in other traditions, and this is not necessarily something that I believe in, they believe that having this communion, having these symbols, is at the very least a spiritual representation of Christ is here. The cup and the bread that we hold in some traditions they would so clearly believe that this is christ with us i was reading about one of the reformers martin luther last night and as he was getting ready to become a priest he he was made a priest and he was allowed to do his first mass where they would do the eucharist and it said that he was so Taken by this moment of holding Jesus' body and blood that he couldn't even speak. Holding the representation of our chaos, of our corruption, of our sin, and knowing that the perfect God would take that upon himself in order to give his life as he held that at the front of the church. It said his mouth dried up, and he could barely utter the words, words that he had memorized for this very occasion, but the gravity of the situation was not lost on him. Jesus is our new ark. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is present with us. Jesus is here in every situation that we face, even though we are sinners, even though we still have corruption in us. And yes, we are living in a way that hopefully will be eradicating that corruption. But right now, I know I'm not perfect. And I know that God doesn't necessarily have to choose me, but he allows me to choose him. And he loves me all the same. And that he is working all things together for our good. What we hold is an ark that I didn't have to suffer for. Is a means of salvation that I had no right to ask for. But in this moment, it is placed in my hands, graciously, And so, as we have this communion this morning, let's not take it flippantly, but let us realize the cost that God had to go through in order to provide this ark for us. And let us also consider that God is calling us into this ark. Into Christ, into salvation, into new life, into new hope. So thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that as we have communion this morning, that none of this will be lost on us. The greatness of your love, the goodness that you poured out for us, that you cause goodness and mercy to follow me all the days of my life. I don't deserve that, God. I don't deserve it, but you've made the way. And God, I accept. I want to come into this in your mighty name, in your loving name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift church Perth. That will give you all the up to date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.